0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
1: Hello, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. This is a podcast about making work better. A little bit of a summer break. I know uh, people were taking a break and so I wanted to sort of give a little bit of a pause. And I've got... a A couple of episodes now that maybe you're still away on holiday or maybe you're just not fully back into the work mode. And I wanted to do a couple of things that I've mentioned on the newsletter. The newsletter you could find by going to Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and you'll see a link at the top of the page. And this month for August, I'm doing two read-alongs. And what I mean by that is I've chosen two books that I think have got a real value to them to the moment we're living in right now. Interestingly, I think the importance of culture, business culture, work culture is going to be more important than ever before, because as we navigate to a world which seems that there's going to be an almost universal adoption of hybrid working, there's going to be a really critical consideration. Uh, As I put in the newsletter last week, the the book that we're drawing from first today um, has a quotation in it, uh, and he says, the, the author, James Kerr, says that culture is what happens when no one is looking. And for me, that's got a real resonance that I suspect wasn't directly imagined at the time he wrote it, but a real resonance for hybrid working because no one's looking now at us for two or three days a week. And, you know, we we might find ourselves in organisations where People are gathered on continuous Zoom calls or you might find that you're actually stepping away from that. But ultimately, if culture is what happens when no one's looking, we're finding ourselves in a lot of moments when no one's looking. There was another quotation that James Kerr put in his book. He was referring to one of the old maxims of the US military. And he said uh, that effectively, if someone sees something of low standard and does nothing, they've set a new standard. So this I'm giving you a hint that one of the books we're about to to draw upon is has got an immense wealth to it. Uh the second book, and uh the one we'll be going on to next, I'd love you to contribute. So the second book is called What You What You Do Is Who You Are by Ben Horowitz. Now Ben Horowitz is a, a giant of Silicon Valley, one of the early investors in half of the apps on your home screen. Uh, his company, um, Andreessen Horowitz, is one of the 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 most influential and and um, and really sort of powerful organizations, venture capital organizations in Silicon Valley. So we're going to be looking at his book next. His book is really. About how he advises his companies to set up culture. And it's told um, compellingly through narratives about slave rebellions, it's told through the cultures that have existed in jails. It's it's a, a really entertaining read. So if you are interested in Reading that and maybe sort of exchanging opinions with with like-minded people. What I'd ask you to do is on the newsletter I've I've given details on that. But if you want to read that book, it also works very well as an audio book. Read along. Send me a voice note of what something you want to discuss, and I'm going to be including a lot of the voice notes in the uh, in the episode I put together on that. So so um, by all means, sort of contribute on that. The first book that we're going to talk about today is Legacy by James Kerr. Now, in the archive of 125, 130 episodes of this podcast, I think we've only done two episodes on sport, one about Barcelona, one about Liverpool FC. Uh, This is going to be another episode on sport. Now, what I would say to you is the, the book legacy is a study of the culture of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team. I have zero interest in rugby. I I merely chose this book because firstly, a lot of people have said how instrumental it was for them in thinking about culture. And secondly, I thought, well, look, you know, I don't need to know how to build rockets to be interested in NASA's culture. And I don't need to know how to draw cartoons to be Interested in Pixar's culture and to some extent understanding it from a dissociated perspective to me um, really helped. So the the book Legacy by James Kerr and it's a very easy read. Um, it's very f- full of lots of stories. It's full of uh, f- lots of of evidence. I'm going to first jump in now to a discussion where I actually chat to James. So uh, I'm going to be back after the discussion with James to call out some of the things that I've particularly enjoyed in the book. What I'd say to you is I'd love to hear your perspectives on this. If you follow the newsletter, you'll see on the newsletter that went out uh, this week, there's a couple of uh, opinion threads, and whether you've just listened to the podcast, or whether you've actually read the book, or whether you've just got thoughts on other organisations, other businesses, I'd love to know what you think. the The discussion threads that have gone out in the newsletter are about a couple of the things. Firstly, the the All Blacks have got a, a real sort of compelling sense of humility that runs through them. One of those things is sweeping the sheds. One thing that James says in the book is he describes a scene where he's gone to see this, uh, this you know, incredible match. He's in the dressing room at the end of the game. And, you know, around the world, people are sort of talking about the match uh everywhere it's been dissected. Meanwhile, back in the room that he's sitting in, uh, these two of the most senior all blacks are sweeping the room up. And the philosophy that the organisation's got is that no one looks after them. They look after themselves. So the most senior people generally tidy up the room when they finish. Now it's such a a fascinating application of like servant leadership. And so the first uh discussion thread you'll see is about sweeping the sheds also their no dickheads rule that they've got second part is their use of rituals and we've had a couple of podcasts along the way talking about the importance of rituals Um, but you know if you've got an important ritual at your organisation or you you're interested in sort of discussing uh, great rituals that you've seen I'd love you to come along and join that discussion So, like I say, this episode's a bit different. Really, it's sort of curated reading experience of this book. Um, You know, I'd love you to sort of participate, get involved. And if not in this one, uh, in the one next. So we'll be reading that in the next two weeks. And that is, like I say, the Ben Horowitz book. Right. First, before I come back with some thoughts, let's go into the discussion. uh, My discussion with the author of Legacy, James Kerr. James, thank you so much for taking time out to talk to me. Um, I wonder if you could kick us off by just introducing who you are and explaining a little bit about yourself.
2: Nice to be, nice to be invited. Thank you for having me. Um, my, so my name is James Kerr. I'm uh, a high-performance consultant. I, I came originally out of advertising, uh, and you know my joke is my audiences kind of got smaller. I was much more interested rather than the large crowds, um, the broadcast, much more interested in the narrow cast or, or the, or the culture and leadership and w- how a great team works. And, and so I work with some elite teams. I work in premiership football. I've worked with some special force outfits and, and, uh, in, in other sports, but also in business, sort of at that C-suite level and also on large sort of scale culture change, um, uh, and sort of, reframing programs, if you like, you know, how do, how, do, how, do, how do we shift the super tankers? So I kind of go from small uh, to large. And, and my focus really is on culture and leadership and mindset.
1: Now, the reason why we've ended up deep diving and, and sort of doing this read along with legacy is that I've spoken to people who've told me how much it really affected them, how much it sort of helped them, how instructive it was. In fact, when I posted on LinkedIn uh, just uh, about a week ago that we were doing this read-along, the comments that I got were people saying, that's the single most impactful book I've ever read. So I'd love to know a little bit of the origin, which is nice, isn't it? Uh, I'd love to know. A, that's a, very nice, <laughs>
2: very flattering.
1: <laughs> I'd love to know a little bit of the origin story. Um, you know, what was your fascination with the All Blacks and, and you know, how did you how did you seek to sort of study them and, and really try and understand their their special culture?
2: I mean, I'm a I'm a Kiwi. I'm a boy from Aotearoa, the land of the long white cloud. I've lived in London for thirty something years. So, you know, that team is is it's they say New Zealand is a country of five million stakeholders or five million selectors is an even better way of. Thinking about it. So there's a, sen- a sense of personal ownership, I guess, and and fascination and embodiment of the values of that team, I think, are the are the best, I think, of, of of that kind of Kiwi character, if you like. So I was very interested in that. And I was very interested in, uh, I've, I've worked with a lot of teams uh, in the past. The first team I went inside was the Australian Kangaroos way back in 1990. And I wanted to I uh, do a book on the Allbacks, my team. I've done various books on teams uh, from the inside out, if you like, around culture and around mindset and so on. And it took a long time, but I, I had an opportunity to do uh, a book called Mana, uh, which is kind of the spirit inside, if you like, uh, with a photographer called Nick Danziger. And there was a bit of mission creep, I guess, and I ended up doing a, a second book called Legacy, um, which was really using – my team, which happens to be the most successful sporting unit in world rugby, as a case study of some of the principles that I'd found in my workings with other teams, sports, military and business, to to really tell a story of the core principles. You know, there's a lot, I think, around sport as a metaphor or an analogy for business, and I don't think that really cuts it. I don't think that's valid to a degree. It can be inspiring but not really very informative. What I was really interested in is the... What are the transferable principles that you can take from one domain that, that deeply apply to another domain in terms of creating an environment of high performance, of connection, of empowerment, um, a kind of a winning mindset that can lead to sustainable success over a long period of time. And so the book really came out of that journey, I guess. One of, one of my mantras is, you know, you don't write what you know, you write what you want to know and I was really interested in that in trying to delve into you know the secrets of a great team but the secrets the the rather than as an analogy as a set of principles that could be applied to other domains
1: and and tell me this it, it seems like the, the period that you were looking at here and um, that we're going to go and explore now was a sort of a period of renewal for the team that to some extent yeah. they'd become slightly adrift from this legacy this idea that it meant something and that was being reflected in the results but also in the morale is that right so, yeah. so what was the catalyst for them sort of seeking seeking this renewal
2: uh, well they'd gone 24 20 something years without winning a world cup so they although they they were world champions between world cups but not during the world cups themselves um, so there was that they needed to really take a long hard look at themselves from a performative point of view and i think the feeling was that you know they were losing on the field partly because they were losing off the field Um, at that particular time there'd been a bit of perhaps professionalism had come into the sport there was a new generation coming in Um, there there were some strong characters in the team at that time who weren't necessarily great for the team and the cohesion of the team and it was under new management and the new management came in and took a long hard look at after the first season at what was going on and and decided to fix this thing. They decided they needed to to make a change, and a series of changes, and really reboot, I think, is probably the best way to look at it. Um, I, I, the, the world's most successful sporting culture based on their deep principles and values from the past.
1: Yeah. What I was really struck by was, firstly, um, there seemed to be something potent in having something down on paper, and albeit that you're... your book legacy sort of attempts to articulate that they actually had their own secret version of it. They had, they had their own sort of book that they were all handed, but there was also the sense I thought that was really intriguing for me was that before we go into these values, they'd the values had had some renewal to them. So there was a recognition. We've seen it a bit with the England football team this summer. There's a recognition that the things that used to matter to the team and to players only really have a resonance with the current generation if the current generation are permitted to update them. And there was, there was something in that for me that was really intriguing. It was a bit like they stand on the shoulders of the sort of legends who have gone before, but to some extent, the values that we're about to talk about now, they, they were permitted to have some impact on them. Is that right?
2: I think absolutely. You know, Connection and co-creation, I think, are absolutely vital. You, otherwise, they're just words on a wall. You know, and and one of the phrases I use is, "You need to take them from the wall and get them on the floor." You know, you need to make them real, and the best way to make them real is to is to create a sense of connection and ownership with current inhabitants and in whatever organization that is. Um, the I the one of the ideas within the All Blacks is that idea of "fuck a papa," the idea of a long unbroken chain uh, stretching from the beginning of time to the end of eternity, and. We're all linked arm in arm, and the sun shines on this moment and reminds us that we have a fleeting moment to to make our mark. Um, so we're part of that lineage, but we need to make this link in the chain our own. And I think that applies to any organisation. You know, you, you can you can only really, you know, a the world changes. B cultures are organic and need to be generative. You know, otherwise they're sort of static. As I say, they kind of sit on the wall. Um, so it's what does it mean to us now you know we're we're any group any anthropologically humanistically um, existentially we're only together for a short time you know this is our link this is our moment in the sun whether that's uh, a sales team uh, who have got kind of the next 10 months before people go off and do other things what are we going to what are what are we going to do together today it becomes a really a, important question I think for any group any family um, any any group of human beings because we're very aware that our time here is limited so what do we do with our time here together with the resources that we have I think becomes a really important question and that co-creational aspect which for those you know familiar with culture change programs you know the idea of appreciative inquiry, the idea that actually it's about having people engaging in the questions, and it's not necessarily the questions that you ask; it's that you ask the questions, becomes extraordinarily important because there's something connective uh, in that that uh, creates personal sense of ownership. You know that we have a a, 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 a vital role in the delivery of something um, is something that we all seek uh, as human beings, and so I think leaders who are sort of both inspired and inspiring, who create an environment of collective responsibility, of collective contribution, of co-creation uh, of something together. You know, what, is, what do these values mean to us now? What does this history mean to us now? And especially now, we mentioned it just before the call, you know, we've been through a, a pandemic or a going through a pandemic that is a total social reevaluation, I think. You know, everybody is reevaluating their own role, how they want to live their life, do they want to live in the city or, is everyone, you know, house prices are soaring in the country. Um, do we really want to spend our lives working for this corporate monolith that, does, that seemingly doesn't care for us? Or do we want to live lives of meaning and a purpose that we value, the time that we have and the people that we spend it with? Now, I think all of us have been through... Um, uh, over the last couple of years those kind of questions and i think that the leaders who who really get it um, are the leaders who are able to connect people on that kind of level you know the sort of the the, the idea of um, esprit de corps morale yeah. we talked about morale before is about a spirit it's about the spirit of the people what are we going to do here together um, and so those questions i think are more important than they've ever been and that connective tissue is more important than it's ever been.
1: Precisely, that that was exactly why I I, I wanted to kick off with that in the first instance. I, I found myself in conversation with uh, someone a few weeks ago who, you know, took me to task. He said, "Look, you know, I don't think you understand the importance of the office. I don't think you understand, you know, banter in the office, morale in the office. That's what works about, and that's why I'm mandating my team come back to the office all the time." And I, and my feeling about that was. Absolutely, we can all this, have this visceral feeling that we recognize that, you know, formed before the age of 25, we understand the way the world works or, or work works. Now, as the facts have changed, a lot of people are reluctant to accept that. You know, we're seeing daily headlines of people, try, the government trying to force people back to the office. And so, you know, the, with a resonance to, to what you were talking about, these things often only connect with people when we allow them to have a contribution? And it could well be, the answer could well be that, you know, collectively an organisation says we do want to be back in the office all the time, or they don't say that. But I, th- I, I, I really recognized, as you've said there, the moment we are in seems to have a relevance to exactly what the All Blacks needed to do to achieve their own renewal.
2: I think that, you know, one of the things that strikes me what you're saying there is that, or that, that reminds me, you know, is the idea of kind of crafting our workplace. You know, there's been some, there have been some fantastic studies done around, for instance, um, cleaners, janitors in hospitals, a control group and an intervention group, um, that, that, that some groups go there and they just do their job. You know, they check in and they s- scrub the floors and they do all of that. Other groups see themselves as health carers, part of the health team. They want positive, you know, patient outcomes. Um, their relationship to that job, to that role, is tremendously dif- different. Their relationships are different. What they communicated is, is different. They, their passion for the role, they attract and retain talent for longer in those environments, people in those environments. There are fewer sick days that sense of engagement that sense of making bringing myself to work um and crafting my workplace i think is absolutely vital and we do it anyway you know we do it anyway we go well you know i'm i'm you know i'm i'm not sure an example but people will come into a in, into a workplace and they will create and craft a kind of role that works for them and a sense of uh, purpose uh, and meaning for that environment and again I think particularly now if if we want to reconnect people with coming back to the office and there are a lot of advantages about being together in an office you know I'm, I'm not sure it's just on the level of the banter I think it's it's really on the level of those random conversations that happen where creativity occurs you know productivity tends to be higher focus uh, is often better and certainly that sense of kind of belief and belonging in a common project is is, is higher. So there are a lot of business advantages for the boss, if you like. But but really the question I think you're asking is, you know, how do you get people on board with that? And I think the question is, though, the answer is sort of the same. It's it's have them craft it, have them bring themselves to work, find ways to, for, to have people create more meaning. And that may be more work life balance. It may be spoken hub kind of organisations. It may be um, the need to 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 make the work environment um, uh, either more conducive to to the to the sort of family interactions or more educational and instructive more fun um, you know all of those things because you know right now we're we're having to endure and risk long commutes into deserted towns, particularly at this inter- intermediate period. You know, kind of a little bit what's in it for me will ask, you know, and create and, and have people. And I think those who do that well will more than survive this period. They'll thrive because they're giving people a sense of purpose and meaning. And fundamentally, that's what people require from, fr- from, their work. It needs to be, they need to feel them, that they are bringing themselves in a part of a, a task. Uh, money doesn't really cut it. They can get money somewhere else.
1: Let's jump in some of these because I think it will help uh, bring the ideas to light. So you, you kick off actually with one of the values that I think is sort of really interesting and and really defining, um, which is this notion, um, which is which is this notion of sweep the sheds. This notion that you know no one looks after the old blacks. The old blacks look after themselves. I wonder if you could just explain what this. Uh, value is and the symbolism of it.
2: Well, you know, I, I think on its own, it, 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 you could just. I think it's a manifestation of a deeper value. Uh, so, so just a quick explanation. When when I first uh, kind of observed the All Blacks, one of the things I was surprised to see was immediately, reasonably immediately after a test match, you know, some of the most famous rugby players in the world, rather than grab their bags and head for the coach, head for the bus. Grab long-handled brooms and started tidying up after themselves, sweeping the sheds, taking care of business, sweeping all of the mud and the blood and strapping into, into corners. And, you know, I, I discussed it with some of them afterwards and, and there are a lot of perspectives on it. You know, part of it was, you know, one of the phrases which, you know, the, no one takes care of the All Blacks. The All Blacks take care of themselves. You know, another part is what, what better metaphor for a legacy is the, than, than leaving the sheds in a better place? You know, um, but but underneath it, there there is there are some core values that have sort of been worked out almost on a corporate level, I guess. But I think out of the DNA of this environment, um, humility, excellence, and respect, um, and that that kind of um, holy trinity, I guess, it, the, you you won't necessarily see these words talked about, but I think that, uh, but but you'll see behaviours they've sort of been. Lived, they're being lived out loud all over the place. And there are various times that you will see this from the outside. They look like a big, brutish bunch of imperious warriors, you know, tra- trouncing all comers. But, but at the end of a world cup, one of the players, Sonny Bill Williams gave his winner's medal away to a random fan. Um, and, uh, the, the, so there is genuinely the idea that, you know, nothing is bigger than the team that we're here to serve the team. The players are here to serve the team. Um, and sweeping the sheds, I think, is a manifestation of that. And it was a random idea from one of the coaches to kind of make this, um, this happen. And it's just the right way to behave.
1: Tell, tell me this. It's really interesting because, you know, along the way there, you described the, the, the values of humility, e- excellence, and respect. And the thing is, these are the adjectives that we often find in company values. And they become just generic that they are you know to to your phrase they're on the wall rather than on the the floor and um and they don't translate whereas the behavior of sweep the sheds has got this immediate relevance to it and you know the the other book that we're reading this month is ben horowitz what you are is what you do is what who you are and he talks a lot about um almost deliberately to shake out of that. He talks about creating shocking rules, almost to create these statements that aren't humility, excellence and respect, but something that's more jarring because they at least provoke a reaction. I wonder what your view is on that.
2: Yeah, you see, well, I I would say there's, I think there are some, I think there are fundamental values, um, you know, what we stand for, what the substructure is. And it doesn't really matter if they're generic because they're not, Communicated, but the principles and the, the symbols and the rituals, the manifestation. So you know, for instance, you talk about jarring. The All Blacks talk about no dickheads. Now, I would say that comes out of the humi- the humility value, uh, but but it's it's about you know don't get ahead of yourself, buddy. You know you know you know um, uh, understand that that actually you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. And so those principles, I think, sometimes are more powerful. Much, much more powerful, and and often uh, uh, the the you know if 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 you look at the ancient religions, the idea of sutras, which are really aphorisms within religion. Sutras are threads, and they weave belief systems together. And I think that those uh, uh, you know mantras, principles, um, maxims. The way we do things around here are, are, in fact, in reality, much, much more powerful than just values. You know, a value statement doesn't mean that much to people, even if they're non-generic values, principles, ways of speaking, phrases. Uh, you know, that they're, they're the threads that really hold great cultures together. I think much, much more powerfully. And so, uh, I think, I think values and principles and things like that have kind of been meshed and mushed into one big. Uh, heap but actually i think they're very different and have a very different function within the sort of the the, sister, the information swap that is a good culture
1: yeah because you know you talk a lot about the importance of stories and the importance of of passing down knowledge from generation to generation and there's some wonderful examples these 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 examples for someone who understands very little about rugby but you describe these things that you know when the team plays wales they on a certain bridge, they all exclaim, we'd never lose to Wales. Or they, they go and they track down an old pub where something unfortunate had happened. And it's, it's passing the, the, the burden, the legacy on through these small actions that seem so potent.
2: Listen, I think that's how, I mean, if you think about your family and, you know, a, a family, the, there are family stories in jokes Phrases that will, will that your kids will end up giggling at because it brings back uh, something. There's uh, pancakes on a Sunday or a Sunday roast or a, a particular baubles on a Christmas tree or a photograph of of such and such and a and a photograph of a of a grandparent in the hallway. That's where we get our sense of self. That's our identity as a family, as any group. That's really how we do it. And I think those manifestations and the sociologists would say that culture you can't really see culture except in the in its manifestation you know and and that's really the you know the language and the stories it's it's the the symbols the flags the badges and the rituals the things that we do regularly um and then all the variations kind of under that but they are the three kind of buckets really that that you said and so you think well under language you know mantras Principles, sayings, aphorisms, maxims, um, stories, heroes, you know, you know um, under symbols that might be reward and recognition, the, 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 the badge you get, the employee of the week, um, the World Cup, you know, and rituals, those things that you do every day for the All Blacks, it might be a haka. For Walmart, they stop business once a month and they meet collectively um, as employees. Um, and there are, you know, going to the pub on a Friday night for some organisations, that's the, the ritual. But, but, but the, that's the stuff that creates a sense of meaning and connectedness uh, for people. And, again, I think that's the word, the, the most important word, I think, in high-performing cultures is connection. You know, how are we connected? Um, who are we connected to and what is our connection for? become massively important questions.
1: And I wonder if your perspective, you mentioned the word identity there, and identity was one of the things that I really wanted to dwell on. Quite often, uh, the only time we really sort of hear consideration of identity is when we're being peddled an idea that somehow identity is a a toxic thing. You know, identity is the thing that's misappropriated by politics or that, you know, forces people to do things they don't want to do. But, you know, a lot of what you're describing here is that, Actually, they have created this fully articulated identity of what it means to be an all black. And some of that is about spoken or written or non-verbal communication. But all of it seems to be in service of trying to create this sense of what it means to be an all black so that the next generation treats it with... The same reverence that they've treated it with, and identity seems right at the heart of it. So you've you've mentioned connection there, and I just wonder if these one of the ways that they do connect into each other is because they see their identity reflected back at each other. What's your perspective on that?
2: Well, I think that's exactly right, and I think I, I you know forget the All Blacks for a moment; they're a sort of a case study. You mentioned the England football team, and you look at the identity that. That they have developed around uh, being kind of fearless, being authentic, uh, uh, representing, being diverse, and representing um, uh, themselves and the nation. That they, the, the a, a new sense of the nation, and and you can see you can see it, you can you can feel it, and clearly it's been acted out. It's been hugely influential, I think, with uh, the the three lions being held up as an example of. Who we are and who we're not, you know. So, so that sense of you know identity is. You you said it sort of seems to be a negative thing. I think it's an extraordinarily positive thing. Identity is a sense of self, you know. It's a sense of self as a group. Now, it does. It should be an inclusive, as inclusive as possible, as an identity. Generally, in terms of being open to representation. And so one of the phrases I use with the teams I work with is, this, is the story that you tell yourself becomes the story that others tell about you. And and if you think of it from a programming point of view, you know, garbage in, garbage out. It's a code. An ethos is a code, a code of behaviour and codes Produce results, so, you know, you run through the coding, the program, and you come out, something comes out the other end. So, you put good values in, you could put great principles in, you put a vivid vision in and a, and a driving sense of purpose. You, under, you set strong standards and expectations the way we do things around here. You tend to get good results. And, you know, there's another, within business, there are industries set up to the identity industry. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the time, it's tended towards being brand external and quite superficial. And, and it's kind of been compartmentalized down to the, the marketing department or the comms. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but actually identity is very, very central to any group. Who we are, what we stand for, why it matters. And, and really the ownership should really be at the top table. And actually by default often is, because the marketing department or the brand can put out an identity about, say, we're this. But if the CEO is acting or the C-suite is acting in a different way, no one buys it. And that becomes one of the main problems in any coordinated culture change is that the leadership doesn't walk the walk. My belief and my, my conviction is that for a lot of the time, business is kind of compartmentalised something that's really fundamental to the way that human beings believe and belong and behave um, which is really guided by that sense of collective identity and our part in that and our responsibility and our ownership of it. And and that really should be owned at the top, and that's a leadership tool and a very powerful one. It's not something to be farmed out to a branding consultancy who gives you some nice words you bang in your foyer um, and put on your website. I mean, no one buys that stuff, but people do buy an authentic culture and they do buy the behaviours of a leadership and the expectations within an organisation. And if they're good, if they're based on the right values and the right principles, uh, then they'll, they'll, they'll go out there and march in the streets for that kind of identity.
1: Going back to first principles, I was really struck by, um, effectively, the difference often between different organisations is can you elevate your standards to a higher standard than everyone else. And, you know, and, and and I'd never considered that that would be necessary in sport. I just thought, you know, it comes innately that people would want to operate at a higher standard. But, you know, you talk a little bit about then, you know, the, the question is asked: What would you sacrifice for this? Now, you know, I, I think probably in a day-to-day business, that's probably, you know, not necessarily something you'd want to directly transfer because you end up you end up with either a toxic workplace or burnout or whatever. But you know, it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment, <laughs> and and what it really struck me was that you know, the, the reason why culture can be a differentiator is that if you can make it matter to people that they want to do their very best work, then the discretionary effort and the discretionary work that everyone is capable of is a multiple of what their base work is. And and it really struck me that, you know, a sporting field that yeah. you wouldn't probably feel that these things are second nature to them or the. they're, parental pride that they would be uh, showered with, actually, you know, these are all rich sports people who might take things for granted unless they are reminded of the import of it. And it just really struck me that actually, you know, good culture is largely in service of reaching an elite level of connection with customers, elite level of work. And this is just a really potent way to take people on that journey, to, to make it to recognise that it matters to them. Is it, would you say that that's right? I mean, yeah. as first principles, does that, does that chime with you?
2: As first principles, you know, Napoleon said the moral to the physical is as three to one. The, the moral force, the human force, is a force multiplier. for. for I don't think it's a differentiator. I think that's, that's the threshold. For competitive advantage, if you want to win out there, you want everybody working towards the same goal in the same way at the top of their game. You know, it's not a nice to have, it's a surely it's a must have. You know, surely it's a it's the unifying force that creates that that force model effect for anything. And that's true of of any organization. It it tends to work best in a small team environment. But but I think I'm kind of with Stan McChrystal that we all work in teams of teams. That actually, if we can create those small teams environment in which everyone wants to be the best that they can be and bring themselves to that are very clear about where they're going and, and and why it matters and what their standards are, then then the difference between kind of um, uh, potential, you know, the idea is to get your performance up to your level of your potential within a sporting context. Um, and most of it, if we take the sporting moment again, um, most sportsmen, they spend most of their time not doing the sport. They only compete once or twice a week. They train for an hour a day or a couple of hours a day. Um, the rest of the time, they're not actually doing the doing. And that's true for most of us. It's what you do when you're not playing that matters the most. You know, Buddha said that the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. You know, the way you sweep the sheds is critical when it comes to the last five minutes of a World Cup final. It's the same practice that, that excellence habit uh, reflects all the way through. And... You know, I think you're right. You can't sort of ask your retail workers to sacrifice for the customer. I think that's too strong and too much. But I think as an individual, we can ask ourselves: You know, how do I really want to excel? You know, you know what? And the the, the sacrifice question, I think, is: You know, are you prepared to give up? What are you prepared to give up for what you want to become? Um, you know, what 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 is the uh, and if you take, you know, the, the, I, you know, I, I was uh, there was a decathlete who said his favorite day was Christmas Day because he knows that everyone else isn't training. And he is, you know, what are you prepared to give up for what it is you want to become on a personal level? I think that's a fantastic question. I think for a mid-level boss to start to insist that his, you know, his retail workers work Christmas Day with the idea of sacrifice and all of that. I think that's wrong. I think you can ask that of a, an elite team, but you can't really ask that of of, uh, of, you know, ordinary folk. But I think you can ask that of yourself, you know, if you're ambitious, if you want to achieve things, if you want to focus on the stuff that matters for you and if you're prepared to do that. I think they're really good questions on an individual level.
1: The consequence of your amazing work is that people have contacted you and, and at either corporate level or at sporting level, people have invited you in. If you were going to sort of draw some lessons specifically from this book that you would might maybe sort of say, look, you know, if I was going to direct you this one behavior, principle, action, or one or two, what, what are the things that really sort of... With a difference maker for the all blacks,
2: I think just going a little bit beyond the All blacks, I think in terms of um as a culture, I think cultures are very complex things. I'm not sure there is one answer you know I think uh, and it's kind of what level we're we going in are we going in as a leader or are we going in as a as a, as a you know on a cultural level I think the thing that i I like to work with in terms of cultures is values, vision, and purpose and you know do you know what you stand for and you know what you don't you know you're really clear on that and and it's actually what you don't stand for is is possibly more important than what you do and i think that comes down to the generic nature of a lot of um a lot of values so what would that mean so so what would that mean uh, in values well um google don't be don't be evil you know it's now it, it's maybe been an albatross over their head but it's prom- it's promoted and provoked some exceptional conversations within that environment about what kind of business are we. And you might look at a, a company like Google and there's a lot of hate out there for Google and I understand that, but a lot of love as well. And I think it was really interesting when Google, uh, when, when President Trump decided to put what was called the Muslim ban as soon as he came into office now partly for self-interested reasons but also partly i think because it went completely against the code of kind of inclusivity within that organization google was one and other silicon valley organizations were the, were the, were the kind of the custodians of kind of human decency i think i don't want to get too political at the moment at that point and i think that came down from a deep value set you know so so in answer to your uh, uh, the so that's the kind of the values part. That's that's a really interesting one because I think one of the challenges that
1: Google have got is that to some extent the employees have been better custodians of that in the recent years than the leadership.
2: But I think that's a great. But but you see, I think that's when a, that's when a culture is really working. Absolutely, that's when it really matters, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But you know what you found is that the company, you know, the reason why there was a Google walkout two two and a half years ago is because there was this dissonance that they were paying fifty million. Dollar severances to people who had a sex case against them, or you know they, they they had these issues where the team was saying, "Hang on, just a minute, let's just remind you the values that we've got here." And yeah, so, yeah. so, so actually, a really good embodiment of how these things can matter, but a good reminder that these things have a life of their own. And you know, unless you're going to unless you're going to be a, a leader, teacher, taking people on a journey, saying, "We've evolved that now." Don't be surprised if your team holds you accountable for the things you've told them before.
2: I mean, it, on the Google's website, as you know, it basically says you can call us up on this. You can hold us accountable. They worked. You know, they might not may not be convenient, may not look be good PR for a short amount of time. But you know, they worked. The, those principles that were embedded within that code of conduct, within the ten things, I think that that we know to be true. I think was the phrase. Um, has 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 acted as a kind of moral rudder, I think, to a degree within that within that organisation. And I think, you know, there's an assumption I think that leaders get to do whatever they want. And a lot of the time, you know, there's an old joke I can't remember what it is. I think it was a French revolutionary leader who said, "You know, I I am your leader, so I will follow." And I think I think that's um, it's it that it, that that we talked about values in a way. A lot of the time. Real leaders are really the embodiment of the collective values of the people that they lead. You think about that in terms of the Martin Luther Kings of this world or even a Donald Trump or even an Obama at some point. They become the kind of the litmus paper, if you like, uh, for the moral values that were going on at, at, at that time. And so I think that's something really to be encouraged, rather than this kind of command and control. Hold it a minute. We've got these values in place, which means we can't go and sell, sell drones to the soviets or whatever it is you know so i think that's a really good example of that inconvenience uh you know bill burnback an advertising old advertising guy brilliant guy he said you know a principle isn't a principle until it costs you money and i think that's a great way to look at it you know sometimes it's going to be politically inconvenient for you but if it's about doing the right thing, so it should be.
1: Now, you, you had three things. And I interrupted you with, with the distraction. Sure. Go on. So let's go back.
2: So, so values, what you stand for, what you don't, a vivid vision of where you're going, a proper vision of where you're going. And this is, again, where corporates get it wrong all the time. because, And there's been a lot of research around this about what visions really capture people, capture hearts and change minds. And they need to be visual. Visions are visual. They're a dream. And, you know, the idea of an, uh, an idea is to see. And, and so often we get these mealy mouthed vision statements that are really just kind of concepts of strategy, blah, 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 out there with a whole bunch of values. And, you know, research s- sort of shows that the, the more values that are put into the mix, the weaker that vision becomes. And the less visual, the more conceptual it is, the less concrete. It is, you know, the difference between there was a, a great paper, the difference between saying we you know we are champions of a sustainable future, you know, yawn, um, or we see a future in which um uh in which electric cars um drive themselves through city streets. Now, which one is more powerful? Well one I can see, the other one I can't. But there's very little soul and very little creativity often Applied to vision stuff, it becomes a corporate committee mishmash of bad ideas that absolutely miss the point, and they and doesn't do the job. They're not fit for purpose. So I think I think the and and the the importance of a of 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 a great vision is is collective clarity, collective what's called collective cognition. The ability that it's not, if you have a concept statement that's kind of generic, uh, if you like, everyone takes what they want out of that. But if you can see, you know, I have a dream that, you know, that one day the sons and daughters of slaves will sit with the sons and daughters of slave owners on the red hills of Georgia, you know, in Martin Luther King's kind of way, you can see that. You can see what that future looks like and there is absolutely no debate what we're all going for together. So I think the second part is that vivid vision, the clarity of it and, it, and it gets missed so often.
1: I want to present a slight dissonance to you because I'd love your take on this. Uh, so one of, the things, one of the things I've been studying recently is, um, is elite performers, actually. There's, there's a wonderful piece of work done about five years ago uh, called the Great British Medalist Report. Fascinating piece of work, but it talks about how childhood trauma is often one of the defining characteristics of an elite performer in, in uh, sport. And one of the people who wrote it, a guy called Tim Reese, he says, here's the challenge of this. Often the people who do this work, uh, uh, um, often the people who have had this trauma are dickheads. He said, you know, they're not that nice to be around. They've got a compelling desire to win at all costs. And he said the consequence of that, that he's gone out and talked to teams about, he said, beware that if you've got one of those Maverick players that is just an elite performer, but a bit weird. Beware of being too prescriptive of saying it's my way or the highway because sometimes you need to give the the freak a little bit more space. It immediately brings to mind, I'm not an enormous basketball fan, but it immediately brings to mind the um, behaviour of um, Dennis Rodman in The Last Dance. And so I'm, I'm just interested in your perspective of that. Obviously, the, the All Blacks decided their philosophy was going to be no dickheads. But I wonder if there is the scope for some dickheads within reason.
2: Well, I, th- I think it's a you know it's a judgment call, mm-hmm. and it's about um, the, the 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 there's a, there's a phrase that's used in sports sometimes. You know, you, you want to be a championship team and not a ch- team of champions. And that a championship team it comes down to chemistry and cohesion and and capability, um, and and if you if you create an environment where one person is playing to the top of their game, and is and is great, and everyone else doesn't want to be at work, you know, it's probably not a sustainable team. And sometimes that's as good as you're going to get, right? That's as good as you're going to get. But but teams tend to bounce back and become more cohesive and coherent and capable and competitive when you take that dissonant element out you know it's like you know don't worry about the enemy out of the tent it's the enemy in the tent that you want to worry about but it's a judgment call it's always a judgment call i don't think there's one answer for that and i think um and and you know define dickhead in a sense the the joke is if you have to ask what a dickhead is you know it's probably you're the dickhead but the 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 the, the you know, define what that is, and there's a difference between a dickhead and a maverick. You might take the Dennis Rodman thing and you go, well, here's a guy who needed to go out and blow out a bit of steam, perhaps. But, you know, when he turned up to work, he worked pretty hard. He made the difference on the paddock, on the pitch, on the court. You know, he did his job, and he, the leadership, Phil Jackson in this, in this, uh, gave him enough rope but not too much. So that's a good leadership, and and I think that idea. The, the, I, I met a very interesting um, uh, grizzled old soldier in Afghanistan. I was I was there on a kind of listening mission, if you like. And he said, "The courage of leadership is the courage to let go, the ability to know when and how to let go, and to give people their head and allow that." And in fact, that's a large part of good leadership: is is not telling people how to do something. But telling, telling people what needs to be done and having them bring themselves to that task. Um, and, uh, so it's about how do you create that environment that is a really an empowering environment that allows people to bring themselves to the game in their own way. But I think you need to make that distinction between a maverick who, who might be somebody who's kind of a bit out there and they do things in their own way and, and a genuine dickhead or somebody who is a, the enemy within the tent, who's toxic who is depleting the performance of everybody else. Because, you know, a championship team will beat a team of champions just about every time. So if you're favoring the champions and you're ruining your team, well, that's not a great judgment call.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50
2: pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right?
1: So you've written this book, and, and I'm so grateful for you giving your time so generously. You've written this book that's had this huge impact on sports lovers and and people who aren't sports lovers. Um, if you were going to sort of redo it today, if you were going to add stuff to it, if you were going to reflect on what you've learned after you you close the laptop and and press send, what what would you add? What would you change?
2: I I, I think the only thing I, you know I'd I'd say is that. You know, Legacy is a, is a book about a particular team, but it's not really about that team. I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, you know, I think what I'm really interested in, and I think one of the things that that sport, uh, in this particular case, can teach us all is, is, is you know, if sport is near the tip of the spear, the sort of military uh, right at the tip of the spear, it becomes about life or death. Um I don't think it's a coincidence that the where where you sort of win or or lose or you live or you die by your results. That those are the organisations in which a number of things happen. They're high trust environments. They're very authentic environments. Um, They're very values based and ethical environments. The idea of an ethos of a code of a of a culture is incredibly important, and that's not by coincidence. That that's because. We've learned that's what makes that difference. Um, so I think any leader out there who thinks, "Well, this is a nice to have, but it isn't really, shouldn't really be core," is kind of just traveling the same old corporate road that kind of time and motion and efficiency is created and silos and all of that stuff. But but really, culture is the is that's what we're all about. Um, and, and, and the environment that we create around ourselves as as leaders, and I. I, I ask leaders sort of the c-suite level that I work with is this culture but there's also climate what do they create around themselves um, there's a there's a, a teacher who, who said you know we make the weather you know we make the weather we create that environment around ourselves um, the climate around ourselves and I think on a personal level the question is you know, What climate are you creating around yourself that, that, that fertilizes the store, the soil that everybody within your organization will grow? You know, culture is, comes from the same root as cultivate, to cultivate, to create an environment in which people grow and develop. And as leaders, and particularly at the top table, are we creating a transactional exploitative environment? Or are we creating an environment in which we're, we're creating what I would kind of call a, a growth company, a company that grows from within? And and if people are getting better every day, if they're loving what they're doing, if they're growing and developing together, then your business will too. Um, and, and rather than a kind of transactional what can I get out of them, the, the model, which is kind of, a, I call it the coach-CEO, is how can I create an environment in which the people around me grow and develop and improve, um, then you're kind of on the right track. And that if you manifest that in small teams but also ladder that up around your entire organisation, you have a very, very powerful force multiplier for competitive advantage.
1: When you walk into, like, if, you know, a premiership team gives you a call uh, and they sort of they invite you in. What are the what are the things in your head? I suspect you're going into listening mode. You're trying to go into observation mode. But what are the things in your head you're trying to work out right from the off?
2: Uh, I think it's it's very dependent. I think uh, it it's a lot of listening. It's a it, it is just a lot of listening to see what emerges, and um, what I'm looking for is connection. Human connection, genuine human connection, connection with each other. In, in military terms, um, there, there's a phrase just called patterns and gaps in maneuverous warfare, patterns and gaps. Um, you look for the patterns and you look for the gaps in the patterns, you look for the holes. And, and that's the weak point in any environment. But we also know that cohesion wins championships. Um, there's a, there's a a guy called Ben Darwin who does a fantastic lot of number crunching. He's Australian in, 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 um, NRL in Australia. And he looks at what are, what's the characteristic of a championship winning team. And the, the key factor really is around cohesion, time spent under pressure together, um, kind of multiplied by the human bonds, social bonds off the paddock. So tight teams, you know, you win together. Tight teams win together. So what I'm really looking for is, is there a genuine sense of unity and togetherness? And and what might it take to build that? And sometimes that's structural. Sometimes that's actually everybody sits in their own tables. And sometimes it's a bit more often, there's an emotional sense of authenticity and honesty, safe psychological safety, um, common language, a common vision, common set of standards, all the assumptions kind of left at the door, all of those kind of things so that people can genuinely come together uninterrupted and undistracted to be able to work towards the same goal to the best of their ability so that all boats rise with that tide. So within that environment, if I can see what what the barriers are against that um, and, and what some drivers towards that behaviour might be. Um, then you tend to get a uh, a team that's able to kind of lift its game together uh and and uh, there are fewer gaps in its patterns so they don't get found out uh when they're put under pressure
1: fascinating i've I've loved the discussion thank you James for you you know giving your time so generously it's a book that it's 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 a real illusion because it's it feels like a short book but it's got so much in it that um i i i felt like it was you know you can see why so many people have have recommended it as one of their favorites thank you i really appreciate you joining us today
2: bruce it's a, a real pleasure thank you very very much and um you know my my grandmother had a uh, had a saying she said um whatever you do be useful so um i hope it's been useful to you and i hope it's been useful to your listeners um at least um spark some ideas and some thinking about about leadership and about how to um, make a contribution so thank you very
1: much Great discussion with James I am so grateful for him giving his time for that uh, you know I, I said at the start I was going to call out a few things that I found especially instructive for me you know the 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 All the Blacks are by far the, the most successful rugby team of all time. And, you know, to some extent, they've been called the most successful team in sport. And that's not necessarily because they draw from a, a bigger talent pool. If, if size determined it, then England have got more rugby players than the rest of the world combined. Um, it's all about sort of mobilising that group. And the, the way that James talks about culture in the book, he's, he sees it as like an organism. It's sort of this constantly evolving, growing, changing thing. Um, I, I, in the in the book, you'll find this sort of 15, uh, reflecting the size of rugby teams, 15 uh, different headings, you know, things for me that really stood out, the the importance of the celebration of integrity. Uh, James describes it in a really memorable and simple way. He says, integrity is honouring your word. And it just really strikes me that, you know, a lot of the the cultural missteps that we've witnessed in the last few years, the, the next book we're going to read actually covers some of this. The cultural missteps we've witnessed in the last few years is where organisations have had an equivocal attitude towards integrity, where organisations like Uber have had a, a clear edict that their objective is to uh, effectively is to hit the numbers and then worry about integrity afterwards. So we're going to come to that in the, the next book. Um, but like I say, some of the other things that I think are really critical and what I took out from the All Blacks experience, um, the importance of rituals and, you know, even non-rugby fans will know that the, the All Blacks have got these this dance, this performance, this hacker that they uh, they go through at the start of their games, but their their rituals really extend beyond that. You heard me and James talk about um, the fact that the the All Blacks have got this chant that they they give out when they go and play Wales. They they shout on the the bridge going into to Wales. We never lose to Wales. Effectively, they've got a, a series of very clever devices that do one thing. They they cement in the idea that these players are extending a long lineage of success and uh, encouraging them to take it seriously that they are part of extending this legacy. What what it reminded me, the whole book really, like I say, not someone who necessarily has the most interest in rugby, what it reminded me is, is that... Um, that they have to articulate at one point that, you know, you've got all these young, arrogant, confident players who are doing great in their normal jobs and they need to be told why this this job, this team matters more than maybe they might initially take it for granted. And that really struck me because I think we all look at sports players and imagine that, you know, this is a great honour and they would spend every day treating it like an honour. And I think the objective of the, the culture at the All Blacks is to try and say, okay, of all the things you do in your life, you need to treat this with the, the utmost seriousness and and really sort of make sure that you give the very, very best of yourself in, in your All Blacks career. And it just really struck me that, I, especially when we're thinking about work, one of the challenges we've got with work is how do we make people have a high standard how do we make everyone treat our work like we've got an aspirational goal of of delivering excellence and sometimes a bit like that initial comment i said right at the outset that you know people will see something that's a low standard and the very fact of doing nothing means they've just set a new standard i think what you're reminded of in in this was that they really set out to to romanticize and celebrate this identity of them being the best that they could be because the objective of that is that they will then set out to 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 live up to that aspiration anyway like I say I'd love to hear your perspective uh, there's a couple of I uh, have chats, that, uh, discussion threads that have just gone out on the newsletter alongside this. If you don't subscribe to the newsletter, you can get it. It's the link at the top of the show notes for today's episode. And like I say, we're going to be discussing this and another book. So if you've if you've got any additional comments on this, feel free to reply to the newsletter with a voice note and I'll include it in the next episode. Or you might just want to listen to this, uh, this audio book or read the audio book that we're reading next and drop a show note about that. I think in aggregate, I've read both of these books three times now. I think in aggregate, you're going to get a really interesting perspective that sets you up for thinking about culture in a different way. Like I say, this idea that culture is what happens when people aren't looking and we're surrounded more than ever before with people not looking. The idea of values and behaviours and thinking about being more... I think, intentional about our culture, is going to be more important than ever before. So love you to read along, love you to drop your comments. um, And, you know, ideally the next podcast will be continuing this conversation. I've been Bruce Aisley. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you can join in the conversation on the newsletter now. See you next time.